One of the most important things uh, you can do in life is to make sure God is in your home. Uh, there's no question about that in my mind. There's no question about that at all. And, uh, you know, we need to, we need, we need to make sure that He is in our home. Uh, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, by that, I don't mean, I don't mean having Bibles prominently displayed around your house or even verses hanging on the wall. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, we had a, a big Bible, you know, a big thick Bible. It was like this thick and it was, and um, the only reason I opened it is because it had pictures in it. And every once in a while, I'd you know kind of want to look at the pictures, uh, you know. But I, so I'm not talking about just having a Bible displayed around your house or or um, you know or verses on the wall. Now those things are fine, and 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 they're good, you know, and they can be certainly be reminders. Uh, the problem that we run into with those sometimes is that we treat them as good luck charms. I've, I've had people tell me, well, you know, I know my house will be safe because I leave the Bible open to such and such a passage on my table when I'm going on vacation. You may do that. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to discourage that. I am trying to discourage you from looking at the Bible or Bible verses as a good luck charm. As a uh, as a talisman, as something that you know is because I have this, I'm I'm okay because uh, we have these verses on the wall. You know, we're okay. Um, that you know that that's not the purpose of the Bible. That's not the purpose of God's word. You know, to give us this good luck charm. Uh, that's not it at all. Uh, you know, now what we're talking about, what we're going to talk about today, is living in such a way that our you know in our homes. That it is obvious that God is in the house. Even if there are no Bibles, even if there are no scripture verses available to see, you know, to the open eye, even if that's not the case, the fact that God is in our home. Now, we've reached a part in our study of the book of Colossians where God leads Paul to give short and direct and powerful uh, directions about having God in our house. And that's what we're going to look at after we pray. We'll turn to the passage and look at that, but let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is important. It's, it's through your word that we come to know you about you. It's come, it's, it's how we, we increase in our knowledge. It's how we get direction for life. It's, it's, uh, it is very important and not just as a good luck charm, but, and not even, not even as a source of knowledge, but as a source for living. Because if it only gets into our head, if it's only laid out on the table, it really isn't going to do much good. We need to get it into our living and into our life. So I pray that that will happen as we spend some time now looking in your word. That you will make it so real to us that we won't be able to do anything except say, but, but you know, praise God, this is how I, how, how I need to be living my life. So guide our, our thoughts that they may in turn lead us to those actions and to that living that shows not only as God in our house, but God's in our heart because that's where it has to start, Father. And if you are there, uh, there will be a change in our living. So use your word, use your truth, let your spirit minister. Uh, we will try best we can to let your spirit have free reign, but you know we get easily distracted and we sometimes get resistant. So I ask that you would help to break down both the distractions uh, from without and those um, that resistance from within, that you will be seen as God and Lord in all our living, we ask in Christ's name. 
Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, it's on page 1085 in a pew Bible. A lot of different translations available and a lot of different translations here in the church. I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard. That is the translation that's in the pew in front of you. Um, And again, I'm not talking about which one's best. It's a good translation. What I'm talking about is sometimes you may get lost if you're reading, uh, you know, the New Living Bible or King James or New American Standard or something else, and I'm reading from a different version. Uh, so turn to your Bible of choice. If you get lost, I'd encourage you to use the Pew Bible, page 1085. Um, I've been wanting to do a series on marriage and the home, and perhaps we'll get to that later this year. My original intent and thought was, oh, let's do it in February. Yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, anyway, so, you know, as we're looking and as we're thinking, uh, today is a condensed version. Look at it this way. Today is the Reader's Digest condensed version. Some people don't even know what that means anymore, you say to Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest used to sell these books. Reader's Digest used to be a magazine. Let's start there. It used to be this little magazine that came out with a bunch of short stories, and uh, they put together these condensed books. So what they did is they took out all the stuff that they figured you didn't need to, to know about to be able to read the book, and they put four books or four or five books or two or three, whatever, together in one book so you could read the whole thing and you could feel like you were really reading stuff. I believe they even have a Reader's Digest condensed version of the Bible. Uh, I would not recommend that for you, Um, but at any rate... This is a condensed version of a later series, perhaps. These are, you know, there's, there's four short statements covering wives, husbands, children, and fathers, followed by six verses on slaves and masters, really. Now, we don't have slaves and masters here in our country, uh, but some feel the extra attention to slave and masters, as Paul was writing, was due to the fact that Onesimus was... Um, one of the couriers of the letter to the Colossians, also carrying a letter uh, to Philemon, which is another book of the Bible, another epistle here a little bit later. And, but that epistle concerned Onesimus, uh, in that Onesimus was a runaway slave, hooked up with Paul. Paul was sending him back to uh, his, his master, Philemon, with, some, with a letter of some instructions there. Uh, so you have an extended uh, writing on uh, on uh, the relationship between slaves and masters, which will actually get the least amount of attention in the sermon uh, today. But uh, what you need, what we need to remember here, is Paul's writing to a group of people. He's writing to a church that he did not start and he had not visited. So he was writing to them some brief general statements on on those. You know, that those individuals that are the main participants, if you will, in home life, husbands, wives, children, uh, and fathers. And, you know, the husband, fathers generally are the same one, but uh, not necessarily. Now, there's only one sentence to each one of those. Follow along. Beginning in verse 18, verse 18, wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Don't stop listening, you know. Don't stop listening when you hear that because you're irritated or because you're trying to show your wife that that's what she needs to do. Just let's follow along. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Again, keep listening. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. And then the six verses on slaves. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly 
fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. There is no favoritism. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now this section starts out with one of the most unpopular verses in in the Bible. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, you've heard probably a lot of different things about this. Uh, let's, let's look at what the, what the Bible says here. Be submissive, first of all, does not convey inferiority. All right? When it, it doesn't convey that at all. Be submissive, that is a military term referring to one coming under the leadership of another. To them, that was very, that was very clearly a, a military term speaking about leadership. Uh, to us, it is, it, it carries a lot of other baggage in our society. Uh, not so much in their society at all. Uh, it does not suggest that the man is better. What it does mean is that husbands and wives have different responsibilities within the home. But the responsibilities are all toward the Lord. That's going to become clearer, I think, as we go through this. Now, this does not call for blind obedience from the wife to the husband. What it does tell us is that the the wife is to offer submission to the husband's leadership that is consistent with the gospel. That phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this addresses wives directly as ethically responsible partners in marriage. That was a huge leap forward for them in their society. In their society, the women were not seen as anyone that had any type of standing at all. Now, that may offend you, and, and it should, but what you need to realize is I'm simply telling you the society in which they lived. The society in which they lived oppressed women in, in, in big ways. She was not at all a partner in this marriage. She was a, a pawn, even worse than a pawn in the marriage. So the fact that she's addressed here as someone who is ethically responsible is something totally new to their whole societal structure. And what you see here is it, it makes the wife's submission her willing choice not a law that ordains male dominance. They had laws that ordained male dominance in their society. Paul doesn't, God doesn't have Paul appeal to the law at all. What he's doing here is he's, he's telling them, you know, that the wife, you're to willingly do this as, as a choice. It's a statement here about the relationship between a husband and a wife, not a statement for women to submit to all men. I can remember uh, hearing teachings about, you know, and some people thinking that this is a call for all women to submit to all men. That's not what it says at all. That's not even close to what it says. This is talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And what we need to realize, too, is is submissive does not mean subservient. It doesn't mean, you know, that 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 that, that she is, you know, the, the lower servant here. This is a call for women to give themselves to her husband, uh, 
that a woman's allegiance and service will be for her husband. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is, a, is a very good illustration of the attitude called for here. In that parable, a man is traveling, and as he is traveling, he is beaten and robbed, and he is literally left in a heap on the side of the road. He is unable even to get up. He is most likely on the verge of death if you're beaten that severely. Well, what you have in the parable then is as he is left there, a priest and a Levite come by, not together, individually. As a priest comes by, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be losing out on his role as, as priest and become unclean. And so he, he passes by on the other side. He cross, he gets away from this man, doesn't want to go by and doesn't want to, you know, give himself to this man at all. And a Levite comes along and he doesn't want to be bothered either. And so he also avoids this man, you know, according to the, the dictates of the law. Well, then you have a Samaritan coming along, and to refer to him as a good Samaritan, we use that all the time. We have helicopter name, a good Samaritan, and all this other stuff. Uh, to them, good and Samaritan never went together because a Samaritan was worse than a dog in their minds. He was a half-breed. He was, uh, uh, he was, uh, they were looked down upon. So the Samaritan comes by and the Samaritan sees this man and he ministers to him and he, he gives, he, he helps him there on the side of the road. He doesn't stop there then. It says he loads him up on his animal and he leads them in, into an inn. And at this inn then he arranges for this man's care and he even says to the innkeeper, you watch over him, take care of him, just so you know this is a paraphrase, dude, and you know, take, take care of him and I'll pay you whatever it is, whatever it costs, there is no limit on this, whatever, whatever it's going to take to make this man better, to help him out, I will pay that and I will take care of that. And that is the attitude that we're talking Talking about here, it's that attitude that I, I'm going to use what I have to give you life. That's the picture that he's talking about here with the relationship between a husband and a wife, where it says that the wife is to submit to her husband. That you know that the, the wife lives with that attitude that I am going to use what I have to give you life, to to help you to help you flourish. I am going to use what I have. It's, this is a call for a woman to form a team with her husband. Not competition and not manipulation. Now, the man, you've heard me say this before, sometimes in jest, but there, there's a serious part to it and you need to understand that. The, the man is the head of the home and the woman is the neck that turns the head. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the, the bit of truth to that. It's not that the woman is manipulative. It's that they work together in tandem so that they can accomplish more. They work together in tandem so that they have a broader view of things. They work together in tandem so that they can, they can be as one seamless, as one seamless body working together and functioning there. This is the picture that it gives us. It's, it's not manipulative in any way. It's working together in harmony. You know, now this is not a call. This is not a call for men to take charge and make his wife submit. Because you know, the, notice the one who's addressed here is the wife, not the husband yet. The husband comes in the next verse. 
This doesn't say anything to the husband about making his wife submit. And a wife is never called, you need to understand this, a wife is never called to accept mistreatment. It says, as is fitting in the Lord. It's a call for a wife to encourage and support the work of her husband as he leads the family. To come alongside and to help and encourage him. And now that, that can be hard. It can be hard if a husband is rude, if a husband, husband is disrespectful to his wife, if he's domineering or if he's oppressive. But the wife is called to give herself and her devotion to her husband as is fitting in the Lord, even if her husband's behavior makes it difficult. We're all human, so I should really rephrase that to say, even when her husband's behavior makes it difficult. Because we sometimes do. We're humans. You don't use that as an excuse. This is direction to the wife. Now, this verse does not stand in isolation. It is dynamically and intimately connected with the next verse, verse 19. Look at it there, the husband's responsibility. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. You've probably heard some teachings before on different words for love. The word for love that is used for love here is agapo or agape. You may have heard of it. That's that self-giving love. That's that love that it, that that puts that puts others first. It's that love that thinks of the other with no regard for return. This is the love that the husband is called to. Husbands are to love their wives in a manner that puts priority on his wife. He is to love his wife in a manner that puts her needs before his own needs, before his own wants, before his own comfort. Which means it is sometimes uncomfortable to live this way, men. But that's the love that's called for. That's the way God loves us. When it says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When he said that God so loves, that's the word he's using. And in fact, that's the, that's the, the way Jesus loves us. That's the love we're called to. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, very much a parallel passage to this, it says, Husband, love of your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A husband's love is to be that love that has a priority on the wife, that has a priority on her needs. Not, the, not focused on the husband's own needs, not focused on the husband's wants or desires, but focused on that. Now, the result should be a male leadership that's patterned after the servant leadership of Christ, not patterned after society. Now, in their society, it was very much a forced patriarchal dominance. It was a forced male dominance in their society. And this, you know, these these words that Paul is writing is, is a huge affront to their society and to their societal structure. 
And, it, and, and in many ways, it is to ours as well, because in our time, what we do is we push for our own rights in every relationship. Isn't that the stuff you hear screaming about on the news all the time now? Everybody is pushing for their own rights, as defined by them. This has nothing to do with that. This is a relationship between a husband and a wife. This is a a relationship that the husband is called to live in towards his wife that puts the wife ahead of the husband. It puts you ahead of me. You know, and, and it's really from both partners here. Now, the husband does not exercise his rights over his wife, but he extends his love over his wife. It's not that the men pushing for, for his rights, it's the man extending his love. Which means that he never thinks and acts in terms of his own rights. He is always willing to set aside those rights in preference for his wife. This takes intentionality on our part, men. Intentionality. This does not come naturally for us. It, it, it takes work on our part. It takes diligence on our part. You cannot let your guard down. The emphasis is not on the husband's authority to govern. <clears throat> the emphasis is on the husband's responsibility to love. That's the emphasis here. And a wife who is loved like this verse calls husbands to love their wives, a wife who is loved like that would never want to take a step backwards into the feminist movement. Because that would be a step backwards. There is to be a mutual respect and uh, under the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 5.20 says something very similar here about wives be submissive to your husband, you know, and, uh, excuse me, 22. Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of times we gravitate to that, but we have to remember Ephesians 5.21, which says submitting to one another. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul goes on and he addresses wives, submit to your husbands. And the verse we just saw, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The same, the same two things. This is a relationship that allows both the husband and the wife to become that all God wants them to be. Men, in your leadership in the home, there is zero doubt in my mind. There is not one inkling of doubt in my mind that God is going to hold you responsible to some degree for the, for the spiritual growth and health of your wife. And men, you will be held responsible before God for the spiritual health and growth of your wife. There is no doubt in my mind according to scripture about that. And women, you need to understand, I also have no doubt in my mind 
that God is going to hold you responsible for the growth and spiritual health of your husband. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it depends on you. What I mean is he is going to hold you responsible for how you obeyed what it says here in helping that, that he's going to hold you husbands responsible for helping your wife to grow to be all she can be in Christ. And he is going to hold you wives responsible for to, to see that you have done all you can do to help your husband to grow to be all they can be in Christ. Because this is what these verses call us to. When it says that wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. This is what he calls us to. Now the verse goes on for, for the husbands here and it says that a husband is also not to be bitter toward his wife for any reason. For any reason. We all pout as adults. You do. Wives, ask your husbands how you pout, they'll tell you. Husbands, you have the guts, ask your wife how you pout, and she will tell you. Goes, you know, what does, what does scripture call us to? It says, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not conceited. It doesn't act improperly. It's not selfish. It is not provoked. And it does not keep a record of wrongs. Husbands, you are to live without any bitterness at all towards your wife. And I say, well, of course not. She's my wife. No, no, we, we still can get that bitterness going because we begin to remember these things then. Hey, you know, you, you, you just didn't wash my favorite socks in time. Uh, you know, you, uh, uh, you, you, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You, you know, you spoke and, and what it says is, husbands, you know, you're not to be bitter towards your wife in any, for any reason. Now, again, this can be hard when a wife doesn't respect and love her husband. It can be hard. But a husband's love toward his wife is necessary even if the wife is unloving toward him. Just as the wife is responsible to submit as God calls her to, regardless of her husband's rudeness, the wife is called, you know, to submit to the husband still. The husband is called to love his wife despite perhaps the wife's rudeness. Now, when a husband and a wife live in love and submission as we're called to here, it will be clear that God is in their house. It will be very clear. And they will experience more and more the completeness of Christ. Now he goes on in verse 20, he addresses children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, children do not automatically obey. Perhaps you've noticed that. You know, perhaps you have noticed that. They automatically do what they want to with no, absolutely no regard for others. They do. That's just the way it is. You did it, and, and you know, and um, you know, Mary. I don't want to discourage you, but your baby will do it too. Uh, this is just the way. You don't think babies cry because you don't think babies cry because because you want to hear their voice and they know that, do you? No, 
they're crying because they say, take care of me. Take care of me. This is what they're doing, you know. And, and, and it will continue that way unless you teach them. Because a, t- a child needs to be taught to obey and they need to be taught to think of others. And the child who does not learn to obey their parents is not likely to grow up to obey any authority. The lack of respect for authority in our society reflects the lack of respect for authority in the home. What we see in our society is simply a magnification of the homes within our society. And teaching children to obey needs to happen when they are young and still in your home. Now there comes a time when they grow up and they move out on their own. Jesus talks about that. And Matthew says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. He says that, you know, that they will, they will leave their father and mother. There will be a cleaving of that relationship. There will be a joining, a welding together of, of this relationship that they will cleave to, you know, joined, welded to one. They will be made one. There's that picture of the husband-wife relationship again. You know, when, they, when they're married, the bond of the husband and wife is not to be separated. But at the, in the meantime, you know, he, he, we are told that we are to train those children, we are to teach those children to obey. Now, again, this verse does not stand in isolation. It flows right into the next verse very well where it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children uh, so they won't become discouraged. Now, uh, one of the commentaries I read said, well, this could be translated parents. And um, yes and no, um, it, it can be what I believe is going on here is God is addressing the, the, the one who is most likely to be the most irrationally hard on their children. Not that the mothers can't be. Because certainly they can be, you know, and we've seen them. But what you see here, you know, he's saying, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Uh, some of the translations say provoke. Some say embitter. All good words. We do that when we push them to anger. We do that when we humiliate them. You know, we do that when we demean them. We do that when we make trivial or or unreasonable demands. We teach them obedience, not servitude. When he says, you know, that you teach them to obey, you're not teaching them servitude. They are to serve God, not you. Obedience will help them in life. Servitude will rob them of life. You know, your correction should lead to their betterment, not their frustration. Not uh, it should lead to their peace of mind, not to their mind being in pieces. You know, it, it's your correction is not simply because you're frustrated, but because 
they're doing something that needs correcting. It's been amazing to me these last few weeks how I've had to live through the sermon once again, you know, that, I, that I've been doing. You know, and, you know, not only my relationship with Ginny, you know, but this whole thing about training kids and, and all that. And it's not that my kids were frustrating me. I was driving some of my grandkids around. And, uh, oh, it was Michael and Luke. I was driving Michael and Luke around on, on uh, you know, when I had started working on this sermon. And they were just really full of energy in the back seat of the car. And I was ready and really tempted to say, just be quiet, sit still, you know, leave your brother alone. And, you know, and, and I was tempted to say all these other things. And then I just really started listening. And what they were doing was really just having a good time together as brothers. They weren't poking, they weren't jabbing, they weren't, you know, doing any of those things. They were being silly. Well, you know, guess what? When you're, you know, eight and six, seven, uh, you're silly sometimes, aren't you? And so I said to myself as I was driving, they're not doing anything wrong. Just turn off your hearing aids. Uh, you know. <laughs> And, you know, and, and I just, you know, I, I'm just, I don't need to correct anything here. Because they're not doing anything wrong. And it made drive much nicer for me, too, because, you know, I really enjoyed then, once I got that through my head, I enjoyed listening to them together in the backseat as brothers laughing and carrying on and just having a good time. When he tells us, you know, not to exasperate your children, sometimes, sometimes we simply, we correct them because of us, not because of them. You know, and, and, you know, it needs to, your correction needs to lead to their betterment. When you teach them what we're called to do, you know, you're guiding them, you're teaching them to have a love for God and a love for others. Let me encourage you, make it easy for your children to obey. Not harder. Don't make it harder for them. Make it easy for them to obey. Too often parents automatically say no when their child asks for something. And I had found myself doing that and when our kids, you know, when they, when they got to, you know, as they were growing up and they'd come to me and, you know, dad, can I do this or that, you know, and, and I'd say, well, you know, I'll think about it, you know, and they'd ask me again. I said, do you want an answer right away? What they learned was they say, no, 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 no. Because if they wanted an answer right away, I was probably going to say no. But if they gave me time to think about it, you see, if I took the time to think about it, then I would get to that place that I, got to much quicker with Michael and Luke in the back seat to realize that what they're asking, there was really nothing nothing wrong with that. A parent should and grandparent should actually listen to their child and evaluate each request. Let me encourage you, look for a reason to say yes. Look for a reason to say yes to them. Not to always be a no dude. 
you know, look for a reason to say it. Look, you know, we should look to encourage our children, not to discourage them. Again, a lot of the times, you know, we'd say no. Sometimes I'd say no to my kids because I didn't want to get up. You know, now my grandkids come over and they're going to ask me again today because they, you know, asked me yesterday. You know, um, they came over and they said, Papa, can we go for a hike? What they mean is, can we go out and play in the mud with uh, all the construction back there? And will you come with us? Because they can't go out there alone. And that's what they're asking me. And I say yes, you know, and we put on our, I bought boots. I got, you know, Ginny and I got boots. I look like a a pig farmer. That's not meant to be derogatory. That's meant to show you I have rubber boots that come up to here now, you know. And uh, and I bought, we went to, I forget what it was, but I walked by the shoe department. There's this row of boots like that for kids. I bought various sizes. And we have this row of boots in the garage now. You know, there's mine and then Jenny's and then there's all these other. And, you know, so we put these boots on and we go, I already know what's happening because (laughs) Caleb asked me to, you know, I I saw Caleb this week. uh, You know, also, well, I see him every week. But anyway, he said, uh, Papa, can I go, (laughs) can I go through the sewer like Luke and Michael did? Said, yeah, we can do that, buddy. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, there's a drainage ditch. They rerouted the creek underneath some houses in the road out by us, and they rerouted this creek, and there's probably, I don't know, 100 or 120, 150 feet of uh, this, I assume it's three-foot sewer pipe. I can't get in it. I know that. And, uh, you know, I can see straight through it, and so the creek runs through there, and uh, after they had first made it, Michael, we're down there, and you know, we're looking through there, and they said, you know, Papa, can we go through there? Sure. Will you come with us? No. <laughs> I said, I can't get in there. You know, I can't get in there. And uh, so, you know, Luke said, I'm going to go anyway. Okay. I said, I'll watch you, and I'll meet you at the other end, you know. And so he does that. They do it. You know, there was a time when I would have said, you know, Papa, can we go on a hike? No. Yeah, go ahead. Ask your dad. You know, stuff. Uh, you who are grandparents realize that, you know, our kids were practice, right? We practiced on our kids, and we're getting more things right with our grandkids. That's a great thing. Uh, what? Let me encourage you, parents, get it right the first time. You know, don't don't be look for that reason to say yes. Look to encourage them. You know, and, and not to discourage them. Now, when I say, you know, not discouraging them, this doesn't mean they always get their way. Because they don't. You're the parent. You're the grandparent. No, you can't hit your brother with that. Makes sense, right? Yeah. You know, no, you can't hit. You know, (laughs) Caleb, Emery, and Aniston were in my office uh, on Wednesday, and whatever day it was. And uh, I have two baseball, I have two bats in my office. Uh, one, I have a wiffle bat, which is plastic, and I have a really nice 35-inch wooden Louisville slugger. You know how hard it is to find a 35-inch wooden Louisville slugger? But at any rate, Aniston picked up the wiffle bat, and, you know, and she came over, and she's by Caleb, and, you know, she's touching him, you know, a little bit with it and stuff. And, 
And I said, you know, Aniston, you know, don't do that. She went over and she grabbed a wooden bat. I said, put that back. You know, just put that back. Um, and she wanted to play with it. But now, so when I say, when I say, you know, encourage them, don't discourage, that doesn't mean that they're, that, that you never say no. And it doesn't mean they always get their way. And it doesn't mean that they won't sometimes be sad. You're the parent, parent them, but parent them in a, in a way that you can encourage. It means your goal is their betterment and their growth, not your lordship over them. Your goal is not to lord it over them. What you need to understand is when a child does not get encouragement and love at home, they will seek it somewhere else. If you as a parent will not give them the love and encouragement they need, they will go and they will find it somewhere else. Why do you think gangs do so well? Why do you think, why do you, why do you think there's a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of, of uh, pregnancy that's outside of, outside of not just marriage, but any type of actual love relationship at all? It's because sometimes our children are looking for this encouragement and love that they didn't get at home. And if they don't get it at home, they will seek it somewhere else. You need to get a hold of that. A discouraged child often becomes a disgruntled adult and they lack the ambition, they lack the confidence, and they lack the responsibility that they need to make it in life. Lead your children. Teach them to be responsible. Teach them to be confident and to know their worth and their place in God. They need to know they are worth something. And they are worth something to God. They need to understand that God has gifted them and given them, and, and, and given them talents and abilities. And that they should enjoy those and that they should use those and that they may be very different than their brother or sister. They may be very different than the kid next door. I don't expect them to be their brother or sister. I don't expect them to be the kid next door. What I expect them to be is responsible to God, knowing that he loves them, cares for them, and wants them to flourish. Encourage your children. Teach them. To obey. God will do great things in our lives. Verses 22 through the first verse of chapter 4 deal with slaves and masters. Now, um, slaves often lived in the master's home. They were very much part of the home here. You know, but they were slaves. They were not employees. They were considered property and a master could do whatever he wanted with his property. You know, so there's a little bit of difference there between what goes on as an employer and an employee. Uh, you know, and, and some asked how come, you know, how come Paul doesn't speak against the slavery issue? That's because you're pulling it into our context, not in their context. When you look at it in their context, remember what we're reading here is a letter to a church, not, uh, not a letter to the Roman Senate. It's a letter to a church and Paul's addressing relationships among those with a relationship with Jesus who were living in a society, in a society, I'll get that word out, living in a society that oppressed some parts and members of that society. And he is saying as God's people, we need to be different. What he is saying, you know, is these are people, not property. 
Now, even though we don't have slaves, you know, there are some principles I think we can learn and apply on how we should live in a workplace. And I'm going to very quickly just run through and pull some of those out, draw some conclusions from this section, and we're going to be done here. From verse 22, you know, work to please God, not men. Work to please God, not men. You know, live like God matters, even in the workplace. Live like he matters in the workplace. You know, like it makes a difference. Work well because God matters, not because someone is watching you, but because God matters uh, to you. This is about your conduct, you know, not the conduct of those around you. It's about your conduct. There was more I was going to say, but we're going to move on. Verse 23. Work with the enthusiasm from a relationship that Jesus brings to life. Don't you, you, you don't work here to the level you feel your boss deserves. Don't fall into that trap. You don't work it to the level that you feel your earthly boss deserves. You remember that you're working because of your relationship with Christ. From verse 24 and verse 25, work for something other than your paycheck. I don't mean don't get paid. You know, yes, you know, you, you should get paid. But if that's your only motivation, if the paycheck is your only motivation, you will very soon be unhappy. You will very soon be dissatisfied because you will think, well, they're not paying me enough. If you agreed to work for $10 an hour, then do the job and work. If you agreed to work for $30 an hour, then do the job and work. Whatever it is you agreed to work for, do that job and work. Do your best because you're working to please God. From chapter 4, verse 1, you know, realize your boss and your co-worker are people made in God's image as well. You know, and, and they're people that Jesus died for. Now, all of what we looked at here today, it does not tell us how to order our families. It doesn't tell us that. What it addresses here is the motivation behind our family relationships. You know, now, that, that should work out, and it will work out in various forms. You know, the form is our relationship with Jesus should be the motivation behind our family relationships. It's that motivation with with Jesus. Seven times in these verses, we're told that we should live like Jesus, you know, is Lord in all of these relationships. Seven times he brings it up. You know, we can only go right in our families when we're subject to Jesus Christ as Lord of our living. And family becomes that place where our faith is lived out and nurtured. The home becomes even more important as the center of Christian culture. It becomes more important as a center of Christian instruction when the society we live in becomes so numb to sin that it accepts and even promotes immorality. Those things that are against God and his word. And that is the society that we live in today. And being able to teach your children and being able to bring them up in a home and being able to have a house where God is, is, is evident is even more important. The family is the primary environment for faith formation. It is the primary environment for living out our faith. How we live in our family says a great deal about our faith. New life in Christ begins in the home. That's where we're to most exhibit these character and conduct qualities that we looked at these last several weeks. That's where we, that's where we learn to live with Christ as Lord. It's where we learn to control our anger, our wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, our lying so that peace may reign and, and that Christ might rule in our house. The family is where we learn to put on compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. All of these things he says in these verses before, you know, yielding to Jesus enables submission. 
that puts others first. It develops a love that refuses to grow bitter. It brings obedience and supportive and encouragement parenting. It, it, it puts devotion to doing work well and recognizing the worth of others as we treat them. What we see here is this is a call to live in such a way in your home with your family that people will know when they see the life that you live in your home that God is in this house. Let's pray.